Hello, everyone. Welcome to Season 2 of the Wave Podcast. Here, us three dudes are going to be talking about various controversial topics and giving our own opinions and gently challenging our own assumptions and each other's assumptions. And if you're into seeing us interview political figures, public officials, and also influencers, then stick around because we will have that in the future. So our first topic that we have lined up is foreign aid in relation to how much we are spending and whether or not that is actually worth it because of the many problems that we have here domestically. I mean, I would definitely say, you know, that that is a big issue in a lot of people's minds, especially when you talk about there's some Republican candidates that we've seen at debates that have been talking about should we be giving foreign aid to countries like Ukraine and, you know, Israel when, in fact, there's so many other conflicts around the world that we choose to get into or choose not to get into and, you know, kind of pick and choose, cherry pick all around. And we still have homelessness, uh, crime, education problems, like, even just here in Los Angeles, I mean, the homeless problem is atrocious. You know, we're still trying to, you know, get up to par on our public transportation. And so it's like, well, if we're having all these problems in America, why are we giving billions and billions and billions of dollars away? Right. I believe we've year? given uh, over 70 billion to Ukraine just by ourselves. Yeah. We're the biggest provider of arms and like munitions and of money to the Ukrainian government. And there has been instances of corruption in the Ukrainian government, um, which Zelensky has called out and like forced some people to resign because of you know the embezzling of um, foreign aid funds and whatnot. I think that's a good point because it's not just some people. It was at one point his entire cabinet, I believe, he just outright axed because of because uh, of performance and, yeah. and corruption. And so you know, there's there's been numerous organizations that are trying to you know cut back on the you know um, stealing of funds in Ukraine. And like hold the public uh, figures accountable because it's like, hey, we're giving you this money to, you know, fund your war against Russia, not for you to just get rich off of it. Um, So it is a big topic. It is a big problem. And, you know, my point is just like, hey, we have so much going on in America that we really do need to focus on our citizens first, especially when we have, you know, drug, drug, we have a drug epidemic. We have, um, Especially if you look at our southern border, the amount of people that are dying per year coming across our border, drownings, dying in the desert, all kinds of stuff, drug trafficking, just things, there's things that we can put our funds to. Um, I don't know about Connor, but uh, I want to, what's Any your thoughts? viewpoint? Well, first I'd like to make a slight correction and say that we're not simply just giving them cash. Most of the money- We're in- giving them a ton of money. No, no, no. Uh, uh, commentator- uh, well, I, I did say well, arms, let's, munitions. Let, let's- Let's be let's be clear here. A, a great commentator on left, right, and center a few weeks ago highlighted this: that most of the uh, new aid package that would go to Ukraine is going to actually go to local weapons manufacturers and the communities that make them. So the money is not directly going to Ukraine. They're getting arms, and there's also a backlog of arms shipments that we have to go through. So some of the arms have already gotten there, and we're merely replenishing our own supply of arms and fueling our own factories to make them. The second thing uh, in regards to the question of how are we helping domestic uh, issues with foreign aid, that's the question to ask is how does foreign aid help poor people here? And the answer with Ukraine is that ultimately it's an investment in making food and energy cheaper because Ukraine, as often stated, is the breadbasket of Europe. Ukraine and Russia are uh, huge providers of uh, plant-based oils like sunflower and rapeseed and, of course, wheat. And the area that they're fighting over is one of the largest uh, coal 
um, natural gas and oil deposits and lithium deposits for renewable energy and uh, electric vehicles um, in the Donetsk, Luhansk region uh, and down through Crimea. Um, Russia now has this corridor into Crimea that's also a strategic area because they want access to the Black Sea right. and shipping ports, right? So Russia is playing the long game for like 40, 50 years ahead. When global warming has increased the amount of arable land in the Siberian tundra and they have a hold on the entire global economy much in the way that we have now. So when we're thinking about giving aid um, and we're also thinking about high food prices, for instance, we're thinking $14 billion here is a good investment in poor people in America in the future. But that's just one conflict. Uh, you know? Yeah, but sure. also it's not worth ha it's not worth potentially going to a going Third to war, war with another nuclear power and having an, another nuclear and going through a nuclear holocaust. It is much better for the US to just be like we'll just have our own wheat production here and also grapeseed and sunflower seed uh oils well, aren't great. The whole the whole with. world wheat economy for instance is all tied together. Sure. We can afford uh, grain, uh, but we are out competing countries in Africa and uh, in the uh, South uh, Asian economies. And those people are going hungry, even as we are merely experiencing higher prices. Then we so, can give whatever extra we have, but it's not our job to be the world police. Well, that's we. That's the very we nature gotta get away of the high that. prices belays the uh, demand and scarcity of the food right now. So. When we're trying to lower prices for ourselves, we have to think about making sure that everybody else has enough, too. Understandable. But on top of that, I mean, you can with the money that we have, I mean, we can significantly invest that money into the American economy and try to go, grow those things here in America. I mean, there is so much land and you can say, well, there's not viable land. And there's always these news stories about, you know, land getting bought up and then turned into, you know, housing because, you know, we're a growing population. But um, at the end of the day, I mean. There are other I think that that is an answer to our question, of course, but there's also other answers. And that's just one specific conflict. Right. And we give like billions of dollars away each year. And it's not like only to you, Ukraine. You know, we're giving money to Israel. We're giving money to this country, right. we're giving money to that country. So not to mention, you know, Biden does Biden, whoever the president is at the time, has discretionary spending as well. Um, and I just think, you know. With all the problems here in America, I think that we should be, in some case, scaling down how much we're giving, not specifically Ukraine or Israel. I'm just saying in general, with everything, we should be scaling down more than scaling up because, like I said, there's problems in America that need to be solved. And we can't be like, you know, this is this is why we're going to you know run for elect because we have an election coming up and homelessness and this and that. And it's just like, OK, well. You keep giving money away. Right. So, in, like, in the perspective of Republicans, they would probably, more, or just a lot of people in general, want to secure the southern border. And I, if I remember correctly, the initial number was $5 billion Trump had asked for, but it skyrocketed up to, like, 19 or 18 or 19 A lot of people are going to be like, why are we giving $77 billion to Ukraine? We could have easily just redirected that to the southern border alternatively here in california we've spent several billion dollars on trying to end homelessness 12 billion dollars in two years to be exact it's more it's more than that two now years ago. it's more than that now yeah I think yeah it's, it's, close, it's definitely higher than i think that it's overall, closer to 20 but in the now. last two years that uh governor newsom was in office he put six billion dollars a year yeah, towards thank homelessness. god that useless 
is getting to the end of his term. Anyway, the point is, a lot of people here in L.A. and California, especially L.A. and downtown L.A., are like, why are we giving so much money to Ukraine or Israel or whoever when we can just put that back here? If we clearly have money to give to other people, why aren't we spending it on ourselves and our own infrastructure? Exactly. It doesn't well, make sense. I, I wanna, it's like it's like trying to it's like the homeless person trying to invite someone into their home. You know what I'm saying? I like, you can't really help people if you can't help yourselves. There are there are bottlenecks involved. First of all, your your argument rests on the assumption that there is an amount of aid that is going or investment that is going to local uh, food problems, and that that food is going to only go to the U.S. and we're going to screw everybody else. Um, and you need you haven't brought to bear the amount of investment that we are giving towards local uh, food scarcity problems versus the amount of investment that we're giving towards once, once again, foreign food I, investment I don't, problems. I don't, and there's a bottleneck problem as well. Like we may be giving as much as we can give to local uh, investments and we uh, That's not true. If we're giving $77 billion worth of shit to other countries, there's more money we can give for ourselves. That's just, no, no. <laughs> I refuse to accept that. If we have billions of dollars to give to other countries, that is well worth investing into our own infrastructure. And I mean, understandable. I think that he is making a good point because at the end of the day, we've talked about it a lot that, you know, even here in America, there's a lot of like bureaucracy that, you know, dictates where that money is getting spent. There's also, in sure, there's also a limited amount of land that we can use. And we can just throw as much money as possible at that land, but then there's diminishing returns, and there might be a better return on investment if we invest it in a critical it, problem. I want to read to you like the quotes from some of the uh, analysts that are mm -hmm. looking at the Ukraine crisis. Uh, when it first uh, er erupted, uh, Inbil Becker-Reshef, director of Na NASA's Harvest Program, uh, noted that we're in the beginning stages of a rolling food crisis that will likely affect every country and every person on Earth in some way. Uh, and another commentator said, for the moment, a cost of living crisis, which is what voters are really concerned about right now, is more visible than a food shortage crisis in most places. Mm -hmm. But that could change if Ukraine's goods stay out of global markets or if major cereal-producing countries have poor harvests. We are at the beginning of what may be a long-term disruption. So we need to also focus on diverse sources of food and a stable global economy. And that's understandable, and that's why we, we've seen the major decoupling with China because we can't rely on one country for like manufacturing. Yeah, right. You know. So it's the same thing we we've, so we we've learned from Ukraine. From Ukraine anyway. Exactly. Well, so we need to make sure that Russia doesn't control so much of the arable land and energy resources in Ukraine that but they is, can use it to hold the rest of the world hostage. The, the, the rest of the... the big, yeah, the, the best way to combat that is have a decentralized network based off of resources. Right. Not right, relying right. on so it. So we need to make sure that... So the, start now. The, the, like, that a liberal government that we can trade with is still controlling a large amount of the resources. But like I said, is it worth a world war? No. It's not worth a world war, and we should try not to get there, obviously. And I think Russia's making the same calculation because that would be bad for everybody. So why don't we just go in there and negotiate uh, military-industrial complex? That's the answer. Well, but we need to make sure that Ukraine the, has yeah. a good bargaining position so that ideally they would work with this stalemate they have now 
this this is my opinion. I mean, some people think that Ukraine should just go for the whole hog. Some people think they should retreat, give Russia a lot of land. Um, I think yeah, Russia yeah. really only wants the Donbass and access to the Black Sea. I, I do too. And so we need to make sure that Russia doesn't think they can get more, that they think that they need to go to the bargaining <laughs> table. Um, and we need to make sure that Ukraine thinks that they can go to the bargaining table from a position of strength. Um, and Well, they're, right not, now, they're desperate right now. Sure. So we need to make sure that they're just a little less desperate. What do you think of Vivek's, Vivek Ramaswamy's uh, plan for Ukraine? He did, you know, say some out-of-pocket things about Zelensky, but uh, about giving, you know, land that is not incorporated into the Ukrainian government already to Russia. I don't, I don't know what he means by that. Often, everything he says is just kind of out of his own little dreamland. It's divorced from reality. That's so not true. That's According not true to the New York Times, yeah, you know that fact checks him. He's got a lot of things right. Yeah, and the New that's from the New York Times, and that's pretty centrist. You, so. You'd have to show me his exact. The New York quote. Times is respectfully not centrist. That's an opinion. No, that they're, you're, they're not. All of their opinions are very not centrist. I mean, we're getting into like political science here. That's okay. like it's like institutionalist, and so therefore centrist. Okay. Um, Agree but, to disagree. All right. So clearly, we've been talking about Ukraine, and we all have our own opinions on it. But how do you guys feel about the same sort of topic in relation to Taiwan? Well, we're currently decoupling where uh, we can. Uh, decoupling is not the right word, but I, in my per, this is my personal view of the the issue. We are going to support Taiwan until our semiconductor factories are done. That is my personal view. You are in line with Vivek. Yeah, I, th- I, gotcha. I think the only reason we're building in America is because we understand how crucial it is to our weapons manufacturing, our economy in general, cars, everything. Um, Just so much everyday use stuff also. Exactly. So I want to be clear about what we're talking about. We're talking about semiconductors. Right. Chips. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. So the fuel for the modern world. Exactly. So <laughs> I think we're building all these factories in America because we're like, you know, it's not worth going to war over Taiwan. And I think that the U.S. has recognized that and they're like the best solution is to get – TSMC to invest in America, build their plants here and all this. And we can still say we support Taiwan, but like if it really came pushed to come to shove. And again, this is just my opinion. Um, that so you'd we say that the, the CHIPS Act is a step in the right direction. Yes, because we're, we need to stop relying on other countries, especially in this growing world of like, you know, China wanting, you know, the um, not the what is it called? The uh, in a South, world of Southwest assured, Pacific is, yeah, yeah. you in know, a world of assured mutual destruction. Exactly. We can't keep relying on other people. And that's the thing is we can't, as America, continue to stick up for everybody because in some instances, it's just not worth the death toll, the potential for World War III. Um, it's just it puts us in a really bad spot. Like right now, we had to send two aircraft carrier um, strike groups to the Middle East to like try and de-escalate the Israel-Palestine problem. Right. I don't so, know that that was to de-escalate. Well, it was to it was warn to, other people not to attack Israel, yeah, right? Ex- exactly, yeah. which is a form of de-escalation because they, America would escalate the problem if they attacked Israel. So the point is, is it's the same thing around the world. There's a lot. It's not just it's North Korea, South Korea. It's China and the Philippines and all these different areas. It's you know Ukraine and Russia. It's Israel, Palestine and Yemen and Saudi Arabia. It's all over the world. So we have to take a step back, you know put more, you know, invest in jobs here in America. So that way we don't have to worry about like, hey, if they do attack, if Taiwan does get attacked, it's like, well, we can still support ourselves with our current factories that we're building, you know? So that's just my take. Connor? So you you don't want to arm Taiwan at all? It's not that I don't want to arm Taiwan. It's that 
if push came to shove, is it worth World War Three? That's the question. I'm not answering the question. I'm not saying like, yes, we should. Like, you know, I'm I'm a big two A guy, so like, hey, you know, if you give everyone the Second Amendment in Taiwan, I mean, it'll decrease the chance of China invading because then they'd have to kill everyone on the island yeah. to you know take in over. National theory or. Excuse me. In national uh, security circles, uh, they call the strategy that we've been entertaining thus far uh, making Taiwan a porcupine that is too dangerous to attack. Um, but on the other hand, uh, it's going to take a huge amount of resources in order to actually do that. Mm. And the resources uh, that we transfer to them are in danger of attack if China ever actually tried to attack Taiwan and we were forced to try to uh, supply them really quickly. Um, as we can do in Ukraine by supplying them through land routes through Europe, uh, we would have to send carriers over the ocean to get to Taiwan. Um, and war games have shown, uh, I was listening to a podcast with the uh, a guy from the Cato Institute, uh, war games have shown that uh, we'd probably lose some carriers on the way. Um, so I would consider Taiwan to be captured territory in Go. It's, it's all but captured already. All China has to do is reach out and grab it. Sorry. And as long as China considers that Taiwan is easily grabbable, it doesn't have to grab it. So as long as we don't arm Taiwan, we can continue to use their semiconductors until we can get our own manufacturing yeah. up. I mean, but even... if we continue to support them, then we increase the chances that China is going to feel the need well, that's... to make sure that it never escalates. Right. That's right? what I'm saying. Even the fact of saying, like, we're going to give, you know guns to everyone in taiwan that could be enough where they're like we're invading you know it's, so it's it's in it's called a, a security dilemma which is like a, a really useful framework for thinking about a lot of stuff um it's when one side uh takes an action to make itself more secure like arming taiwan and then that in turn makes everybody else feel less secure so then they have to do something to make themselves more secure which makes you feel less secure so then you do something. And it's a and cycle. It's, it's a yeah. cycle. The same kind of security dilemma is playing out in backyards across America and in Israel and in Ukraine. So, I mean, overall, I would definitely what say... We backyards in America. Oh, back that up. Back we don't have time for that. Back that up. Back that up. Back that up right now. It's a thing that you, you, know, you experience with your neighbors where you know, they don't like where you put in your trash can. And so you... The, you, uh, you you put your trash can in uh, a more centralized location, and they don't like that, so they push it over, and then you don't like that, so you push your trash can back, and then you okay, tape it to the thing, and then it's, you know, it's classic okay, escal okay, escalation. Okay, okay. Yeah, and then what happens okay. is what we saw in that one town where they kept shoveling snow onto the dude's uh, lawn, and then he went inside yeah. and grabbed his rifle yeah, and then, killed them yeah. all. Gotcha. We got that. So, yeah. It does happen. It does happen. So I agree with you guys on this one. Uh I would love for Taiwan to be able to defend themselves and whatnot, but at the end of the day, that is still also their own responsibility. Yeah, if they were to and say we can't, the world can't rely on them for this one specific thing that's very important. Yeah, it's for, just a recipe for disaster. For the two, Second Amendment point that I was making, they can make that decision themselves and then yeah. arm themselves. Like it doesn't have to be coming from America, but even then, it could still create problems between China. But I think that that would be the best solution because the reason nobody will attack America like boots on ground is because it's like there's, there's more guns than people here. Tens literally. of millions, if not hundreds of millions of people that have guns. There's more guns in this country than there are people. So oh, well, I think that's why that is definitely part of it. Because Japan cause said it in World War Two. Yes, yeah. that too. But Japan said it in World War Two. 
there's a gun ever uh, there's a gun under every blade of grass is what they're <laughs> they're a japanese general they were only quoted. joking because they really just wanted to you know destroy our capabilities for defense and uh, of, of I mean, you could say that, uh, but what you would have in America? No, is that's a definitely constant... a deterrent. If you're going to invade they, they a country and you know everyone around. has the capability of fighting back, you're going to be like, maybe I don't want to do that. I mean, it's that's what just you, very what you, basic. What you see in Afghanistan and Iraq and what all that stuff that happened is, you know, if you tried to put boots on ground, then you radicalize the public that lives here, and then yeah. it's not going to be like, oh, we're banding together and making a military and a militia, and we're, it's just going to be like people popping up here and there, just mm -hmm. like constantly constantly forever and always because america bald eagle speaking of countries defending themselves in the second amendment what are you guys thoughts and opinions on the recent supreme court case the u.s versus raheem connor in the spring of 2020 uh zaki zaki raheem oh no you're about to really go into this dude's moral I'm character i'm just gonna get no i'm just gonna no you're you about to go into this the, we know he's a terrible person and yeah. he's going to jail for okay. a reason yeah just so everybody's on the same page uh, including the listener, mm -hmm. uh, Zaki Rahimi's girlfriend in the spring of 2020, applying for a restraining order and got it because uh, a witness that he shot at uh, saw him drag her towards his car and assault her and then right. threaten to kill her. Uh, and he shot at the witness. Um, and as part of the restraining orders, uh, the federal government makes it illegal to possess firearms. Um, and in a string of public shootings over the next few years, he abused his right to have a firearm. Yeah, there was an instance of uh, his friend's car got declined at a store and he shot up the store. Right, yeah. It was a, was a Whataburger. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so he was uh, arrested and uh, confined, and then uh, it went... He he made he made several constitutional arguments that his rights were being abridged, um, and eventually it went up to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals in New Orleans, which manages Texas, uh, Mississippi, and Louisiana. It's like the southern area. The southern area. I the might Bible be wrong on the states the there, uh, and they said that there is no uh, analog to uh, the law in question in the founding era, which is the central test that the Supreme Court demands of courts uh, from Bruin, which is that there has to be a history and tradition um, of a gun rights regulation uh, for it to be constitutional. That is the only consideration that they have to make. They can't, they deliberately can't make a consideration of the interests um, and they can't balance the interests of the parties involved. Well, With that's... that being said, it looks like just from the posture reading of the, Supreme the Court, reading the oral arguments and uh, and from various commentators who follow the Supreme Court, mm -hmm. it looks like they're going to try to find some sort of narrow balance where all you have to find is a law that uh, shows that the founding fathers thought that you could take away guns from someone deemed quote unquote dangerous or quote unquote irresponsible. Um, and it doesn't need to be specifically uh, that they thought that people who were committing domestic violence uh, were dangerous. Because in the founding era, they thought that that was a private affair between a man and his wife. That wasn't public. 
as it were. Yeah, I but don't think again, that guy should have a gun, but I don't think a restraining order is, depending, I think it is much more complicated than a restraining order limits you from being able to own a gun. Specifically but then because also, the wording of the Second Amendment I, is I can almost, your right to keep and bear arms must not be, like, cannot be infringed. I'm, I also guarantee, this is, the state of California has done this multiple times where when they had to do history, text, and tradition, they point to laws that limited black people from owning firearms as like a historical historical record of like they've done this to mm-hmm. comment. So I wouldn't be surprised if they did that in this, this Supreme Court case. But um, it is a problem. I mean, we've had obviously off-camera topics, I mean, off-camera off conversations about this, um, about how these domestic violence restraining orders are enforced and I, you know, I have personal experiences with people who the woman lied blatantly about violence towards the man when she was the perpetrator of violence. And then there's obviously cases vice versa. Um, and I just think, you know, taking someone's firearms first without even seeing a judge, like if you get an emerging, emergency restraining order, it's immediately like you cannot have, you cannot possess guns, you cannot own guns, you cannot right. go to the gun store. It shows up on your record. It's, it's like an immediate thing. Even when you go buy a gun and you you have to check those check boxes, have you ever been declared mentally defective? Have you ever been the subject of a domestic violence restraining order? You know, it's something that does count against you when you are trying to buy a firearm. And if someone has lied on your name, if it's not true, if there's evidence against it, I mean, the courts, they they can easily take your firearms, even if it's not true. It's just not. Well, I want to I want to read from you uh, to you uh, from the oral arguments. Uh, Justice Sotomayor, counsel, in the end, if there are any due process failures in any system, that'll be subject to a separate challenge, correct? General Prelegar, that's correct. Mr. Rahimi hasn't made a due process claim here. He's not challenging the law on that independent ground. So that's that's understandable, mm-hmm. but I think that, in my mind, they go hand in hand, but if, if the court is specifically showing a distinction, then yes, then the, the entire case is, you know, about should people who have restraining orders? Yeah, own the argument assumes that uh, there is a meaningful judicial review to uh, understand whether or not a person is considered dangerous, subject to the presumption of regularity that that process is a regular process that uh, is going to go by some book and be, you know, prone to error, but at least has good intent and is overall going to make some sort of judgment and. The facts on the ground, uh, as they mention, uh, by respondent's own count in the particular Tarrant County statistics he collected, there were 522 requests for protective orders, but that only resulted in 289 final protective orders. So there is some sort of judgmental process going on. It's the, the, the whether or not that judgmental process is uh, right or affords due process is a separate question to whether or not yeah, the, the Supreme Court is going to have the law is constitutional that, that they can uh, take away a gun from someone who is deemed dangerous by that meaningful judicial review. And so I assume that because you don't like the history, text, and tradition, you take significant problem with it's this. it's a huge problem, and they wrestle it with uh, with it in the argument. Even the conservative judges have a real problem finding a way to say that you can have a really wide-ranging um, analogous law uh, that says that you can take guns away from someone dangerous, but it doesn't specify, like, 
how to judge that that person is dangerous. Yeah, this is right? this is the point that I I've made before. I don't think I've made it on camera. Is that eventually, if there's any sort of process that you have to go through to get a gun or take it away, that's not in. That's basically more or less will go against the wording of the Second Amendment. Your right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Well, so they're gonna have to, to a, re- a well-regulated militia. That's the key no, phrase, and no, they make it's and not. they make that distinction in Heller and Bruin. They Don't say care. we're it's not saying that you can just have a gun at all times. That is we're what it says. In there the are limits to it, and the limits are uh, applied in the phrase a well-regulated militia. Yeah, but a little, what a well re- well-regulated militia was at that time was. Minutemen who could just be able to pick up an arm and fight the British. The if same they get thing as the military. I agree with you, and the, so that would mean yeah. people here would have to be able to have the same capabilities as the military. Exactly, and we I'm currently fine don't. with that. We currently don't. You, don't, automatic you are weapons, not. Auto, automatic I, weapons I are think, banned. I honestly think if the Supreme Court says conservative for the three. next five to ten years, it's going to end up being constitutional carry, and I am perfectly okay with that. I, I I think they might be headed in that direction, but they're having serious problems coming up with a good argument for that because no, they're not. If it says you have the right to keep and bear arms, and it's not, and it shall not be infringed. That's what that's what it says. That's gonna have to be the even, decision. Even then, I what think... they're gonna have to have problems with is, okay, what about nuclear arms? What about f- cruise missiles and ICBMs? Should regular teams. people have be able to have grenade that? launchers? Grenade launchers is fine. I mean, hey, you ICBMs. Can, you can probably buy, not. You can nuclear, buy. You can buy grenades yeah. with a tax stamp in America. ICBMs wanna, and nuclear bombs, definitely not. That's, that that sounds like no, a no, recipe I, for I disaster. A point I've been trying to make. Okay, right. Clarita, okay. go ahead. You can go. So my other point is, I understand that a lot of people don't like, California specifically doesn't like the way that uh, history, text, and tradition um, basically um, makes it harder for states like California and other blue states to categorically destroy the Second Amendment. And so I think that there has to be a way in which, you know, the Second Amendment can be preserved. Essentially what we have in this, not, essentially essentially what we have in the state of California is, Oh, well, public interest, public interest. So we can just on everything. And it, it's been time and time again, like they're in the process of banning all handguns. They're in the process of banning all rifles. It's it's getting to the point where it's going to be like Canada, where they're like, no guns. And we still have the same violence, but no well, guns. They, they don't. So but that's, that's yes, the they point. do. Yes, they I wanna, do. I the vi- no, 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 no. The violence no, has no, been okay. the same I'm pretty sh- in I, black I, and brown I, communities yep. since the 90s when it was worse, when our gun violence was worse than Texas. I found a it's study. The same communities. I found a study this morning also. I can't remember where I saw it. That sh- showed that gun-free zones are marginally, the, they, the chances of them being violent, like, Whether it be gun to mass shooters or just any sort of gun violence is marginally higher. To send me that study because I'm looking at the Californian amicus brief here and it says California's gun safety laws work. The state's gun death rate is the 43rd lowest in the country and 30. Correlation, not causation, buddy. We still have the second most deaths in America. Still the second most deaths in America, according to the CDC. Of course, well, we have more deaths because there's a higher population. Correlation, not causation. That's not how the correlation and causation argument. No, no, no. The correlation causation argument makes sense because. You can't just say like, oh, we have all these gun laws, so like our rate of violence is lower, so technically they work. Yeah, when, Chicago, but, no, no, but then Chicago the, in the has same... the most strident uh, gun <clears throat> safety laws, and they have the worst crime and the most victims ever. Because the what happens is the average citizen 
does not have the capabilities to defend themselves against gangbangers. No, 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 no. It's nope. Shut up. The average citizen does not have the capabilities to defend themselves against gangbangers and criminals. Because the criminals who's like, I'm going to rob this guy, clearly doesn't give a about and the also, law. It's so they're going to get whatever illegal firearm they the, need. The, the, it's a flawed argument to even use the entire state as like, oh, the rate of violence. It's The rate of violence in Los Angeles is significantly different than the rural areas of California. Right. So if you look at our inner cities throughout the country, you'll see that mainly in black and brown communities is where the violence is. If you're looking at everything as a whole. Right. And you just say, well, we have 40 million people. So our rate of violence is lower. We still have the second most deaths in America. But, you know, our rate of violence is lower. I mean, you have to, like, actually look and see. Like you can compare, I think we should be comparing cities, not states. Agreed. Well, the cities have lower crime rates than rural areas across the nation. Brother, look at the violence in Los Angeles. Yeah, we. I think that you know, if you look at the rate of violence in Los Angeles and San, in Oakland, San Francisco, and you look at like theft, uh, violent crime, uh, shootings, and if you look at these specific areas, it's been the same areas for like decades. I wanted to ask. Okay, you want? Okay, no, yeah, go, go, go ahead. ahead. Go okay. ahead. Okay, I wanted I wanted to drill down into exactly what your guys' stance here is. Is there somebody that you can take a gun away from, like a felon? I I think. Okay, okay, okay. That's that's a really bad one because you know technically you're reformed when you come out of prison, but you know the system's broken. So if in a perfect what about system, the mentally ill? And a perfect, I think that um, if you are mentally declared mentally defective then uh you shouldn't be able to own a firearm does the process of declaring someone quote-unquote mentally defective uh unquote uh, uh constitute due process yes but not uh domestic violence restraining orders uh domestic violence restraining orders i mean if you're taking the firearm without you know mental health evaluations without um like due process, like allowing them this, the chance to defend themselves before you take their firearm, then yes, I have a problem mm-hmm. with that, right? Understandable in certain situations, but it, like you said, it does come into like the pro, the due process is the. So I would say with this specific case, I think that you should have the right to take uh, firearms from people that are, you know, if, from a restraining order. I think so. I have a problem with the due process side of things, and because they specifically said that there's two different challenges here and this isn't a challenge of due process, then I personally believe that this case, I support um, restraining orders and taking firearms from people because I think it is a necessary thing in our society to have happened when you have people that are like trying to kill their baby mama or the baby mama's trying to kill them. I mean, there was a recent um, incident in Los Angeles where there was a custody transfer and after the custody transfer, the woman ran the woman over. It was like, and the police were there and it turned into a police chase, crashed the car. It's crazy. So I believe that there should be restraining orders against people that commit violence against others and have demonstrated the ability that they do not have the right to own firearms. Okay. But when it comes to the due process side of things, I think that there are currently problems with the system. While not many, it's, it's probably in the minority. I'm saying probably because I don't know every case across the nation, and I, I have yeah, to look I don't, at statistics. I don't think you've given me some anecdotes, but you haven't given me any like statistical evidence or uh, any looks into the process uh, per state of getting restraining orders that I that you can show. But I, I'm just I can only talk to personal experience I've had with friends and family members who have had. Even though the restraining order was dismissed after the fact, there was an instance where they were barred from having their firearms 
when they weren't when they didn't do anything wrong because someone lied on. So are you saying you would like to see a higher bar of evidence needed for restraining orders? I think that in any instance, even if you're getting an emergency restraining order, there needs to be significant evidence, not just he said, she said. It needs to be like, okay, this person has, you know, scratches, bruises, this, this, that. Was this, you know, a mutual fight? Was this a fight on one side? You know, things like that. So I think, again, to close out my side of this, I do not have a problem with restraining orders against people. I have a problem with the due process and making sure that there is a due process. I'd like like to ask two further questions on that. And and the first one is that uh, it it sounds like uh, the... um, uh, the the problem is uh, that they are uh, weighing the interests of the uh, po- the alleged victim um, over the interests of the uh, alleged uh, perpetrator. Perpetrator, um, when the alleged perpetrator has a right to self defense and the alleged victim has a right to self defense. Correct. Mm-hmm. Uh huh. And so the and towards that right to self defense, they have a right to a firearm. And so you're saying that there used to be a really, really high bar to take the firearm away from the alleged perpetrator. No, no, I should just think al- that there should be like a like I think when it comes to emergency restraining orders, there needs to be like significant evidence. I'm not saying like well, this. The nature I'm not, of it I'm is- not saying like a significantly high bar that's like all the way up here and it's unreachable and it's not going to touch anybody. I'm saying for the the case that I'm referencing in my mind, where a woman assaulted a man, and then two days later told the police that he assaulted her. This man almost lost his job, his credibility, his life was almost destroyed because of the emergency restraining order that also barred him from owning firearms, right? That the all these different things affected this man's reputation even though she beat him, he had bruises on his face, scratched this this that, right? So, so, so like his life his life was almost ruined and he wasn't allowed to own firearms because of a lie that a woman told. And when they went to court, she couldn't keep her story straight and the judge threw it out. So if if it was like that in the first place, why is it that the, the the restraining order was granted in the first place? If he had all the bruises, he had all the scratches, and he didn't even get to he didn't go before a judge. It was emergency restraining order. She said he did this. He's a man. Done. Maybe emergency restraining orders need to just go straight to a judge. I think they should go before a judge immediately. Yeah. And there, this case needs to be like immediately sought out, and the evidence needs to be presented. You know, it, it shouldn't be like. Okay, you're, you have a court case in two weeks. Right, and also weeks, in today's day like, and age, it shouldn't be that hard to get camera footage or some sort of thing. Well, that's I'll debatable. say that's, that's debatable. debatable. It's for big cities. That's true. Like the nature of it is an emergency restraining order is the key here. You can't have a perfect process if it's going to be emergency. an emergency. You also have to weigh that case against the corollary case in which the woman just says, he he beat me. He's a threat to me. And the guy's like, "Well, you need significant evidence. I'm sorry." And then the guy goes and shoots her. You have to weigh the interests of that party versus the other party. I understand, and but think about all the people whose lives already got destroyed because the guy that I'm specifically talking about. Sure, he was he was lucky here. enough have, where his job wasn't going to fire him. And they we said, have, After we "We're going to wait." We have the group where people's uh, lives are destroyed because there was a restraining order against them. And then we have the people whose lives are destroyed because they weren't able to get a restraining order or the people whose lives weren't destroyed precisely because they were able to get a restraining order. You have to ask yourself, which group are you weighing? And in a utilitarian sense, which group is bigger? The people that benefited from restraining orders versus the people who didn't benefit from restraining orders. I mean, there's it's there's an argument to be had. And I think that we can definitely come back at a different time, you know, go 
look at statistics from all 50 states and territories. I want, and I want to say that, at least according to Wikipedia, there are valid uh, complaints about restraining orders and the degrees to which they do not save victims from violence. Uh, but also, that is in part because they're an imperfect system uh, to keep those people from uh, committing violence on the victims who requested the restraining Understandable order. And, and that means that the restraining orders aren't too strong. That means they're too weak. Un under uh, it, uh, more so, they need to be completely restructured rather than too weak. It's just it's addressing some things and not certain. There, things. there are. I think that in general, when it comes to firearms confiscation in the United States, there are significant problems with it. What about red flag laws? Fuck them. No, no, no. Entirely. Let me let me nope. let me say this. Nope. Don't care. I believe oh, in what they would call orange flag laws, where there is a due process to take someone's firearm. So if you say basically red flag laws state like if. Sonny and Connor here are like, Plurry doesn't deserve to own a firearm. Then the police will come in, take my firearm, and then I will go to a judge later because you guys said so. Now, in some some states, there is a penalty when you lie to get someone's firearms confiscated under reg flag laws. So you not, can't you own your firearms because if it's not, I don't want to see it. No, no, no I, it's it's jail time. It's a I believe it's a misdemeanor. Nope, um, should be a felony. Well, I'm not. I'm. I know you're not. This you know, is my opinion. But I'm I'm just stating like current ways in which red, red flag laws have been implemented. And so um, I personally don't like that because there is no due process. I think that, you know, people should be I think that there should be a duty to report from healthcare workers, people that are in mental mental in, institutions like uh, psychologists and whatnot. I think they should have a duty to report people. And then that person they has do, a duty. They do, don't they? Huh? They do have a duty to report people who they would determine are dangerous. They they do, but in not all not all states um, does that lead to firearm confiscation like we saw in Maine. Mm. They were looking for the guy for like weeks, yeah. trying to find the guy. That, that seems and, like that is a very low bar that someone just says, "I think this person's dangerous." I I'm saying due process. I think if you say like I think he's you know, he's told me he's suicidal. I want his firearms confiscated, right? Because you're asking for a, a, a really large allocation of resources uh, to determine if people are dangerous, and that's something that is inherently very hard to predict. So red flag laws uh, are often not enforced, not because we're just lazy. It's because we don't have the resources, because which I was going to get to, right? yeah. um, because California is a prime example where um, there's a backlog on firearms that need to be confiscated. Um, from people that do not need to own firearms, people that have mental problems that, you know, st stuff like that, that have been declared mentally defective. Um, I believe it was NBC or CNBC. They did a good report on it. Um, it will be in the comments for anyone listening or watching. Um, I will pull it up for you guys after the fact. I do not have it on hand. But um, I definitely think that the orange flag laws, quote unquote, are what we need to go towards. Yeah, I know I mean, that I get what you're saying. you err on the side of caution? No. Because the, the thing is... And in fact, you're erring on the side of caution, but erring on the side of caution with respect to the interests of the person that you would take the gun away from. No, because the, the thing is, is like I said, is, um, for example, this podcast. Someone cannot like your opinion, my opinion, his opinion, and say, oh, he said he's a gun supporter. Yeah. I'm going to report it. That's the problem with Red Flag That laws. simple. It's that simple. They can do it to public figures, public officials, anybody in the news. Like they could see a guy use his firearm in self-defense and then someone could report him and say he's mentally unstable. 
I mean, there's there's too many ways in which someone could abuse it and just simply being like, well, they'll be charged in a system that already has problems. So are you saying problems. similar to how you want restraining orders fixed? You would, if I'd want the orange flag, flag law. laws would be immediately to a judge. Exactly. Well, again, okay. you're, you're weighing, it. You're, you're advocating for caution in support of the interests of the person who might be the subject of the red flag order and not interest the interests yeah, of you can't the violate people's rights, Connor. And I, you can't I agree. Violate people's you can't rights. Violate you can't people's go rights. and threaten them with guns and whatnot. I know? understand, but I, I don't think... So you think need to have a recourse against that. I and yeah, don't. Innocent until and, proven... And the cost... Connor, I, innocent until proven guilty. That's, that's why it's taken to a judge. But that's not the burden of proof uh, that is required in restraining order cases most of the time. Uh, if they're not innocent until proven guilty, the accused has to prove that they are innocent. I feel like that should not be the case. Not in the, not well, in the instance of emergency. That's, yeah. emergency that's, that's, what's yeah. been, that's what's been working because the speed at which the uh, restraining order is given uh, is required uh, because of the nature of the And case. like I said, we can have a whole separate topic about the due process. This specific case is about, you know, if they can be held in general. So I think we're all kind of on the same page that we believe that restraining orders should be given because there are people that do not need uh -huh. firearms. Yeah. So I think we're all in accordance and I think we're talking okay. more about the due then process we're, then, and second, we're getting off Second topic. question. Uh, do you think that the uh, uh, history and tradition test uh, supports your position that restraining orders uh, are a good way of determining whether or not somebody should have a gun. Probably not. It probably won't. I, 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 I so. think, let me let me take a second. So you're asking for if the history, text, and tradition supports the taking of firearms. Uh, mm -hmm. No, it yes, won't. Yes, I think so. It won't. It does. I mean, if you even if you look back to slave times, you know, they were like, loitering, they can't own firearms. Like, yeah, it but that, could, that also can be deemed unconstitutional because of how the Second Amendment is Understandable, written. but if you're looking at history, text, and tradition, there are instances in which firearms were confiscated from people um, because they were deemed you know, dangerous. So whether it be through racism, there are historical analogs to point to. Do you to. not have any uh, sort of uh, concerns about it being misused today? Of confiscating people's firearms yeah yeah in the same sort of yeah, sense because that means that there is a history and tradition of taking guns away from people because the general public deems them scary and that I, means that i they think don't that you're watering that down like a mother okay like i think at at the end of the day there are people in society that should not own firearms whether because they have mental problems whether they are murderers killers drug dealers whatever that have demonstrated the ability to not own firearms because of how they have harmed people in society okay um i definitely think that there's arguments to be made you're that, asking for a, like a, a perfect administrative process to differentiate but those that people from that's everyone else. that's the thing is we're not going to get that unless we reform the united states government and that's a lot that's a lot of problems so i don't i don't know that that's possible given human resources Personally, I, I think it's it's you know it's a huge administrative project to have regulations that are enforceable that somehow using precognition determine whether or not someone is actually going to be dangerous. It's much easier to make sure that everybody. That's that's debatable though. I mean, if if I like the, I said, if someone's like, hey, Sonny mm. is suicidal, right? And then you know he goes and gets mentally evalu evaluated, and he's like, yeah, I am suicidal. And that's like, hey, take his firearms so he doesn't harm himself because the majority of gun deaths in America are suicides by firearms. So, and that's been that way for decades. So I think that a system like that would work and 
does work. There's a lot less of a chance of your rights being violated, for sure. Just the, go before a judge is all I say. The video explainer that you sent me uh, said that the question at the heart of the case was, who is the people, uh, when it says, we the people of the United States? Mm -hmm. And that was a question that they brought up in the oral arguments. Uh, Justice Jackson. Um, Katanji Jackson? Yeah. Oh. And in your view, with respect to domestic violence, she's asking the uh, guy who is up there, Mr. Wright, uh, who was arguing for Rahimi's case, are we looking for history and tradition in the Reconstruction era about how regulation was happening in the circumstance of domestic violence or no? I mean, in the government says it can be done at the level of regulation of dangerous people with respect to firearms. But you seem to be suggesting, and I think this is going back to a question that Justice Kagan asked, that what we're looking for is Reconstruction era sources that applied to the regulation of white Protestant men related to domestic violence. Is that the sort of level that we were focused on when we're trying to find a history and tradition? Mr. Wright says, I may not have been clear before, I think it's the founding era and not the Reconstruction era when we're talking about the federal government. And Mr. Wright goes on to say, it has got to be the people, someone who have, would have been understood to be a part of the people, a rights-holding citizen of the United States. But as we know, not everybody in the United States was a rights-holding citizen of the United States, not even woman at that time. So just as Jackson would be accurate to say that the history and tradition of the United States, as Mr. Wright would have it, is one where only white Protestant property-owning men even, Why are you even making people, that argument? When, God damn it. When, I, no, no, that, why, that why are you even making that argument? Because at the end of the day, like, we as a nation have come forward and made amendments to our Constitution. Right, you need to, to include, look at it. Yeah. be more inclusive. Right. So I think that you making that argument is going to give fuel to the fire to all the freaking lefties that are just going to be I'm, like... I'm not making that argument. It, it's... it's, it's Katan. Katan. I, no, I it's, not, it's not Jackson that's making that. It's, it's Wright that's making that argument. That I, we should focus I under on that. I understand, but I think that oh, when they mm -hmm. when no no when they are referencing the right of uh, well, can you what was when it, the he's right? talking about the con the fun he's saying applying that to everyone exactly he's saying because, he's saying, because saying, he's, saying that, he's saying how things were back then but with the modern day but with all the adjustments to the constitution exactly her being like but it's just about white men it's because it's like it's the history and tradition but also our tradition and history as opposed to the founders tradition and history they're different traditions and histories. <sighs> Brother, they're different. They're you're different just cultures. you're just like nitpicking. Yeah, like, the, the, the fact that it feels like you're almost yeah. intentionally misinterpreting one it. section of the history as the determination. He is saying of, how that applied to work. to right-bearing citizens. Yes, and we are all right-bearing citizens now. Thank you. It's you know? not like only well, white. There's dudes. not a history and tradition, according to him, of everyone brother, having right-bearing. Brother, brother, man. Being right He's saying it's not about a specific race or gender. It is. Were you a U.S. citizen? But it was at the founding time. Shut at up for that two seconds. Time. Hold on, wait. Uh -huh, uh -huh. He's saying, were you a U.S. citizen there? Yet, at that time, were they U.S. citizens? Yes. What, what were their rights and how was it? How how were things run back then? Uh -huh. In terms to U.S. citizens. Okay, everyone's a U.S. citizen now. Sure, yeah, great. How does that apply now? Exactly. That's the question. I don't think it does. You don't think it does. I don't think that the history and tradition question I think uh, Constitution, is a good <sighs> But see, I think it's a great the, test. Here's the problem: is that the problem that I have with all this interest balancing stuff is that people and people people that have their own predisposed opinions, for example, judges like the Ninth Circuit and all the BS that they're doing right now, where they're breaking rules so that way they can take up cases and you know skirt around the Bruin decision, right? Just like the Seventh Circuit. Um, people forget that judges do have 
they do have they personal have opinions. Biases. Okay, they have their own biases. And when you're saying, it's, when when there's a, uh, the agenda on the left is to ban all firearms, and you're just like, well, interest everybody like everybody wants that here in California. Everybody wants to ban all firearms in California. So you know, in the interest of the people, we're gonna ban all firearms. It's like you're violating a constitutional right. And on top of that, the numbers are skewed. There's so much misinformation when it comes to the 2A community and like how it is portrayed that's, from that's the left. beside the point. You made an interesting... No, no, no. It's, no, it's, it's, it's a, part it's a of it. very big yeah. point because a lot of people that are against guns don't actually know like the step-by-step broken down statistics. They're just like, oh, well, the majority of children are dying to firearms and look, it's it's a big number. And then you find out that they included 18 and 19-year-olds on the freaking poll and then 60% oh, of those well, people 18, are... 18 and 19-year-olds, screw them. You they're know, not they children. They're firearms. not children, okay? And then on top of that, 60% of those people that were dying were di- teenagers dying in gang violence. 30% Oh, suicides so no because no, the, fucking, the point of the, the argument point. is is it's misinformation to label a statistic saying that the majority of children are dying uh from firearm deaths when they are teenagers in gangs and it's suicides and only about 10 percent is accidental shootings and then um other mishaps with firearms and other things police shootings etc uh, including 18 and 19 year olds and that's including 18 and 19 year olds and then throw the whole thing out. It's still a good argument. If no, you say it's that not. If you're saying children and you're including legal adults and 19-year-olds, it's, it's, it's too broad. It's too garbage. Throw it out. It is a broad like so, paint so on it, on the entire top you can't just say they they knew it was the they knew it was 18, 19-year-olds we, we and teenagers. We don't have to to finish off what I'm saying is that people do not even specify when it comes to, you know, um gun statistics. Like they don't break them down the way that they should. And in turn, people are misled very easily when it comes to anti-gun agendas. It's just true. It's just true. No, that is objectively true, especially with the one he is. I mean, even if you look at mass if shootings, it's including they, eighteen they and nineteen-year-olds, and that's sixty percent so of the disingenuous. No, it's not. That Bro, is no. You're f- objectively wrong. If he is citing a statistic and saying, "Oh, look at that," they included legal adults in a statistic about children. The whole thing's. F- Bunk and throw it out. Below 18. No, in the statistic, in the you statistic. read the statistic. 18 and 19 year olds were included in that statistic. 18 and 19 year olds. A statistic they're, about they're still, children. They included. Children. They're not. They're not you're, fully developed people. No, bro. See, and it this, doesn't this change is, the fact that it's still a problem. No, you're fucking changing definitions. You're wrong. I also want to no, see this statistic. No, I no, also you're wrong. Have you are objectively wrong, Kevin? In front of me, come out here. Discuss it. You're objectively wrong. If this is a study specifically talking about children, children. in the legal definition, and 60% of those are 18 and 19-year-olds, the whole okay. thing is a garbage well, decision. I wouldn't say 60%. I'm saying the majority of the teenagers that are dying can are... You, can you give me the statistics? Oh, yeah. so See, go to the CDC. It. Go to the CDC and look at the statistic right now. And then go to the specific points on that statistic. CDC. Okay. What's Look, they're the, the ones who have this. The, uh, the majority of children are dying from firearms. Google that and then put CDC after it. And then look at the specific numbers of the statistic. Firearm injuries were the leading cause of death among children and teens ages 1 through 19 in 2020 and 2021. Through 18. Say that again. The numbers 18 and what? The Take leading cause of death among children and teens ages 1 through 19 in 2020 and 2021. How is that misleading? Once again. I just said this 4,539 billion quadrillion times, okay? You should specify, the, then you have more of a problem with how it's reported. Exactly. Yeah, and then you have to give me an example of how it's reported. Go to, this, to, go to CNN. Look up CNN right now. Children dying by firearms. Just Google it. 
gun homicides and suicides in U.S. children and teens are at a record high. Okay, well, I gotta find you. I, I'm gonna find you. Also, that, uh, you have to. You you're complaining about like no flirting. You, uh, and news outlets will make corrections, so we need to find how it was yeah. when it was first reported. Yeah, that is a thing that. The, oh, here we I, go. Axios. Axios. When they reported it, they say gun deaths among children are soaring. When you go to them and their uh, report, they're referencing the Pew Research Center. And when you click on that report, Pew is referencing the CDC. CD says CDC, and on the Pew Research Center, they say gun deaths among U.S. children and teens rose fifty percent in two years. Yeah, but that's not misleading because no, hundred percent it is because because gun deaths among children are still soaring. That's still true. No, but they're including, they're using exactly. they're the using, whole thing that's exactly. about children and teens no, no, and being like, to that, nope, it's just not kids. not necessarily reporting on the whole study. No, that's, brother. Can you send me that article? Yeah. If you, if, if an organization misquotes a statistic and then that is used by people like on The View who get millions of viewers who are never going to do any research, then yes, it is misleading the public. That is a problem. Those people are now going to go vote because they thought that what they said was true when it was not. That is my problem. When it comes to uh, mass shootings, 80% of those are handguns. Do a lot of people know that? No, because all they blow up in the media is the 100 to 150 people that die per year. Yeah, and most from of that is also rifles. gang violence. So it's already a lot of that, well, which isn't like, oh, between... well, you, you just brush it off, but it's like, it's already bad people doing bad things. Yeah, I so it's not like a... it's just like people getting shot up for no random reason. I want to make a distinction between your media bubble, in which you have come across these sources that are erroneous, and everyone else's media bubble, which you don't have access to. You'd this have to access some national but... polling in order to actually understand what people are uh but even if firearms. you look at the national polling when it comes to firearms, people like, oh, uh, should we have universal background checks? People go, yes, because a lot of people don't know the difference between a universal background check and a background check. So if they don't know the distinction between the two, which one is like, hey, we already have background checks across all 50 states in America. You go to a gun show and you buy from one of the dealers, you have to get a background check. The loophole that they talk about is people going in the parking lot, private parties in the parking lot, selling guns to each other, not the FFLs at I don't, the event. I don't know what so to loop it back into this whole sort of really long tangent, any thought, any more like final thoughts about Clarifications. This? Clarifications, anything. It, no. it sounds like the history and tradition test as applied by the Fifth Circuit, which I know you guys is your favorite court, uh, is, is not working even for you in determining whether or not people are dangerous by the founder's standards. And it, it doesn't seem to be workable as a uh, standard going forward because it doesn't weigh the interests of the parties and even you want to weigh the interests of the parties you want to you want to say there's there's there should be a high bar and due process to take away somebody's gun and that is weighing the interests of that party over the interests of caution on behalf of the person who might be affected by that person having a gun so it, it, explain history and tradition sex really really quick yeah sure that that's a, that's a great point it's test uh, as as applied by mr wright uh the counsel for rahimi uh he wants the court to only look at laws uh in the founding era before reconstruction and slightly before america was founded in order to determine whether or not somebody uh could be uh i want to i want to interject could, really could quick have their gun taken I wanna, away I wanna, no, I wanna, no, no 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 i want to interject really quick i want you to give the supreme court's history oh, text and tradition yeah. not what 
this circuit. lawyer. No, not, well, that's, not the circuit. That's precisely the what they're trying to determine with this case, what the extent of the history and tradition test is and what an analog establishes. Mm. And okay. it's, it's hard to do because in Bruin, there were analogs for New York's gun law. I mean, the gun law itself that they struck down was 120 years old or so. So they're really going to have to, to, to walk a really fine line in trying to determine what constitutes an analog. And there's no way that they're going to do that um, without causing them a whole lot of headaches with further court cases. There's already a ton in the pipeline around gun rights that you guys have referred me to as well. Oh, yeah. Any final thoughts, questions, or comments that you have about specifically what we said in relation to this case? I would definitely agree with Connor on a lot of points there that, um, you know, we do have issues with history, text, and tradition, and that this court case does need to define how far, how long, can you do this, can you do that, are we using recent, all these different things need to be um, defined, and I don't think that it necessarily means that we can't use history, text, and tradition, I'm simply saying that it needs to be defined. So I like Bruin, and I want them to define it better, so that way we can accurately assess other Second Amendment cases, and other cases going for what, I'm pretty sure that it's specifically for the Second Amendment, uh, History, text, and tradition is what they specifically cited in Bruin. So they're talking about Second Amendment cases as a whole. Mm-hmm. So that that was really my only point. I think that Connor's saying, like, we, we, we he's right. We do have differences on how we think history, text, and tradition should be applied. And that's what the Supreme Court is for, to define the actual, you know, whole scope of what they, of, of Bruin. This will be that one court case that will, you know, add to Bruin. And there's more, like you said, down in the pipeline that need to be clarified so that way we don't have this constant, like, rehash. Yeah, how far back are they going to – yeah. I I feel similarly – they're going to have to figure out specifics and how far back they go and when – for each case. And I think ultimately it's all just going to end up in – it's just going to end up with constitutional carry as the final end result. That's probably not, like, with this particular case. But eventually down the line because of just how the Second Amendment is worded. I mean how they've interpreted the wording of the Second Amendment. I mean there are, no, there there's are alternate not, interpretations. Those people are f- stupid. There's <laughs> not much interpretation. Your rights to be, keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That there's not a lot of interpretation there. Agree to disagree. There's a comma. Isn't there a comma? Is there a comma after shall not be infringed? There's commas before and after, and after that. Yeah. It's a nested clause, which is part of the reason why it lends itself to multiple interpretations. And the interpretation in Heller was not even an interpretation that was mainstream until the 2000s. Ladies and gentlemen, if you like this type of content, go ahead and like and subscribe. And stick tuned, because like I said, we will be having more guests. Thank you for listening. And tell us your thoughts on our opinions and start a civil war in the comments, because we're po- totally not headed towards one here in the U.S.